And welcome back to day five, the final day here at Global Supply Chain Week, where we're talking about industrials, manufacturing, and also the oil markets. We have an expert here for us to give us an outlook on 2022 and, you know, post-COVID. Uh, will the, the oil markets ever return back to, to normal? And that is Ben Shattuck here. He's a research director for uh, both upstream and downstream uh, domestic production at Wood Mac, and that's Wood McKenzie, an uh, energy consulting and economic firm. He's based out of Houston and known Ben for a long time. We went to, to MBA school together. Both have energy management degrees there. Uh, of course, he continued in energy markets, and somehow I got into the trucking markets, but we're going to talk trucking and energy right here. Welcome to the conference, Ben. Kevin, thanks for having me. Uh, it's always great to catch up. We were here last year. The world obviously, you know, has changed and, and transformed in that time frame. So looking forward to, to giving you an update. And, you know, no, no matter how uh, divergent of paths we seem to take, they always seem to end up crossing again. So uh, happy to be here. Really, really excited to share with you some of our thoughts about, uh, you know, how as we come out of uh, the worst part of the pandemic, you know, the oil and gas industry has, has transformed and really what you can expect. That is a very good point. We were talking about this last year, February of 2021. Uh, we had the same discussion. What was the price of WTI at that point, roughly, ballpark? Well, gosh, we thought it was high. And, you know, I think we were kind of in, in the mid-60s range. And, of course, you know, I'm, I'm following it today. We're, you know, we're kind of bouncing around that, that $90 part. So if we thought it was high, then, you know, it sort of, ultra high against expectations at the moment. And U.S. oil and gas plays a big role in shaping that oil price over the coming decade. You know, we, we think probably some of the, the fears in the oil markets around some of the stuff being offline uh, in the Middle East has driven that price up higher really than what we would expect the fundamentals to point to. And so we would expect oil prices to trend downward to, over the next couple of years. Uh, you know, talking the mid-70 dollar mid so, so nothing ultra low here. Um, thinking about it longer term, the, the key question is how will U.S. oil and gas show up to meet the call uh, for demand, for increasing demand? And we're in a, a new world in terms of the business model that U.S. specifically shale oil producers have adopted. Obviously, financials dragged last year. That's one of the things that we spoke a lot about a year ago. And we said, look, there's there's a to-do list uh, ahead of these producers. So I think it'd be good to check in and see where these producers are against that to-do list. It's paying down, it's paying down debt. It's reining in uh, the reinvestment rate and the spending rate. And then thinking about managing through the cycle and, and consolidation. And I think the fundamental fear is that the that you know where title showed up last decade with production that might not be able to do that in this decade. And, and that's driving price strength, we think, in, in the second half of the decade. Yeah, I've heard that too, right? The, the last decade of production, uh, you know, shell players were able to flood the market with cheap shell oil and kept energy prices down. And they might not be able to do that in the next decade. Is that like technical reasons, you know, that the oil plays themselves has a lot to do with that? Or is it financial management? Because we know that a lot of shell players were wildcatting, overproducing, overborrowing, got themselves in financial troubles, especially when COVID hit. Is it is it one or the other predominantly, or is it a mix, kind of an evenly mix of the of the two? 
I mean, the answer is that it's both, but largely it's due to it's due to the uh, sort of updated business model for title of producers, and that's going to that's going to be skewed towards the financial behavior and the stewardship of capital. If you think back last decade, title was relatively new technology. There was a lot of external and cheap capital that poured into it. At the same time, that capital, along with discoveries of new plays, so I'm thinking of moving from the Bakken in North Dakota to the Eagleford in South Texas and the Permian in West Texas, drove a lot of spending outside of, of cash flow, also drove a lot of technological improvements. And the cost of supply fell by a lot. When you have all of those factors in play, you are you're basically you're accruing debt in order to drill outside of cash flow, and then as a sector, you're actually influencing that commodity price because you're adding oil into the global oil market, and and obviously you saw that. And low oil prices were one of a couple of reasons why title as a sector came in with you know an unacceptable gearing ratio into this decade. So now you have a situation where We've drilled some of the best rock, and we also, instead of reinvesting 130% of our operating cash flow, are reinvesting at a sector level closer to 50%. If you put those two factors on top of each other, you just don't end up with consecutive years of million barrels a day of growth. If we throw all those rigs back into the field, absolutely, we can grow production by more, but but investors have made it uh, absolutely crystal clear the priority is to pay down debt and to return excess capital back to uh, shareholders. And that's been done. So many of these companies, most of these companies now have included a dividend. Many of them have, have done special dividends or variable dividends. A lot of times, even, even at the expense of paying down debt, um, you know, and this is all in the face of in the face of higher than expected oil prices. So to get back to your original question, the business model has changed. We're, we're not outspending cash flow anymore. And that, of course, puts a ceiling on the amount of activity that we would see. Technologically, we get better, but we're applying better technology to worse rock. So you're sort of, you know, splitting hairs there in terms of, uh, or at least in within the context of what you would have seen technologically last decade. So that brings us to, back to to the production and the growth in production. Is it? I guess it's probably growing here domestically at a, a very healthy clip. Well, it depends, I guess, on what you define as healthy clip. So we, we expect a little bit under 400,000 barrels a day growth from the onshore sector this year. We had years that were a half million uh, through to a million plus barrels a day stacked on top of each other last year. So with, within the context of the rig count and the spending in the field, yes, we're, we're getting back to growth. We're not declining. We've seen a couple of years of decline onshore, but we're also not going back to the glory days where we're growing at more than a million barrels a day. So it is, for most producers, represents a mid-single-digit growth profile. The majors will lead this. They're going a bit more in the Permian Basin. Exxon and Chevron will account for about 175,000 barrels a day growth. Um, and the private producers actually have really kind of stepped up to the plate here in terms of increasing rig count. Prices are very high. They're very favorable. Uh, for a while, service rates were low. We can talk about what's happening on that, that side. And, you know, the oil field certainly is not immune to inflation you know, across raw inputs uh, and, and labor as well. But the privates actually led the increase in rig count through, uh, as we saw prices creep up last year. So it's really the, the majors and, and the privates that are at the forefront of this. Everybody else is in that mid-single-digit growth. So is that healthy? Yes. And it's certainly a much healthier business model, and it's a more stable and pr- 
predictable contributor to global oil markets, which doesn't upset the apple cart. You end up with it, you know, the volatility that we saw last decade that was ultimately value destructive for everybody. Uh, but within the context of those annual growth rates last year. And, and you're talking about constraints, and there are some constraints outside of the changing business model and the, the actual plays, the, the oil field plays themselves and maturity of fields, and that is labor and materials, tooling, everything that needed to go, that needs to go into to production, exploration, midstream, everything is seen a, a tightness and we're seeing it in the, the trucking market, especially for labor, where the biggest competitors is the energy markets. So can you describe what's, what's happening in the labor market in the oil field? Yeah, I mean, the labor market in the oil field, is, it's not entirely dissimilar. It's not at all really that dissimilar to what we're seeing in, in other sectors at the moment. And, and that is really uh, that, it's, that it's incredibly tight. And of course, there's some wage inflation that, that's going on there. Uh, you know, that, that's not the biggest factor in, in, in the equation in terms of, of economics for oil producers, but, but it's one of many uh, cost increases. Obviously, I alluded to the raw inputs, those have increased by a lot. Uh, but, but the other issue is, is the quality uh, of the folks that these companies are trying to hire. And when it gets tight and there's competition from other sectors as, as well, you can see sometimes a degradation in terms of the, the quality and the experience level of people working in the field. And that manifests itself in many ways. Uh, you know, fortunately, we haven't seen uh, too many big uh, sort of accidents in the, in the field. But we do see a loss in terms of efficiency, in terms of productivity, and that's a headache. Counterbalancing it compared to prior uh, upturns in, in price, at least, is that, as I mentioned, you know, producers have raised their budgets and will raise activity at a, you know, maybe even 15, 20% this year from last year. It's still far below where we were pre-pandemic. And that means that these companies are not having to grow their workforce. So, so for the best ones, it's really about retention. And, you know, that's that's obviously going to be uh, driven in large part by, by salary uh, and a few other factors. Well. So, so tight, uh, but would be a lot tighter if these companies were trying to grow their operations. It'd be uh, almost impossible, really, with the great resignation uh, period coming along and labor markets just, just being as tight as they are. We were talking about onshore. What about offshore? What are some of the, the, the key trends that you're seeing in, in offshore and maybe the, the economics behind those? Yeah, you know, so we activity in offshore has has picked back up. And, and particularly the Gulf of Mexico uh, fits the profile of, of what oil producers are looking for in the face of the energy transition. And that's what we call advantage barrels. And advantage barrels mean low cost and low carbon. And Gulf of Mexico barrels are some of the lowest carbon uh, producing barrels in, in the world. The, the issue that these producers will face is that it's a longer time frame. It's a longer cycle time to develop these projects. And there's a lot of, while demand has recovered very well, there's a lot of uncertainty about demand as we transition into a, a lower carbon uh, global energy mix. And so you have investors who are at the forefront of thinking about uh, you know, how, we, how we invest in these projects and how we allocate capital uh, that, are, that have to take time frame into account. And we're, we're talking about applying higher risks so or discount rates into the future for longer cycle time projects. And, and not to bring it back to, to tidal oil, but it's very short cycle time. It, you know, the dollar invested today is paid out this year. It, it's not multi-years until you see first oil. And so you're not, you're not expanding that risk profile, or, you know, 
uh, over a longer time frame and inherently increases the risk of those projects. So there has been an increase in activity offshore, uh, not to the same extent, because it's just, you know, simply it's not as nimble as, uh, it's not as nimble, but for those who are there, it's advantaged, no doubt. Yeah, and you you bring up carbon and low carbon. That's one of the the, the the major themes over the last, you know, I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but it's really been major, we've seen in 2021. A, a lot of, you know, a lot of supply chain companies, a lot of oil companies, really the, the entire world is is talking about net zero carbon, about sustainability more and more. It's, it's been a common theme, uh, certainly in, in media, in this industry and supply chain, how is oil and gas? How are oil and gas producers um, adapting to the, this mentality and the, the push of having carbon neutrality? Whether it's 2030, 2050, uh, pick your date. Um, but but what are the thoughts and what are you seeing out there? You know, I've I've been surprised in some ways to see uh, you know legacy U.S. oil and gas uh, actors embrace actually a, a low carbon future. You know, I think that the, the belief is that, that oil and gas uh, play a role in our energy mix for, for the foreseeable future. So the, so the way these guys are talking about it is future-proofing the business model. So as you've observed, you know, targets have been set to, to get to net zero. Uh, at the moment, the industry is looking for the best path to get there. And you know there are a variety of strategies that these producers will will employ to get there, and there's certainly not a one size fits you know fits all solution for that. You know a lot of the low hanging fruit is being tackled at the moment. You know the the writing has been on the wall for this for a long time. You know a number of years ago when when Larry Fink at, at BlackRock, you know basically wrote that ESG concerns are are you know at the top of the priority list. You know I think for those who were savvy, they, they started thinking about it before them and started acting on it. At, time. Um, it will influence things like access to capital uh, for sure uh, in, into the future. And so, they, so these producers have embraced it. Uh, you know, they've hit the low-hanging fruit leaks, flaring, and so forth. Uh, and they're now thinking about, uh, you know, more sustainable carbon management uh, solutions. Uh, the challenge there is, is measuring is measuring pace. Uh, you know, we're, we're not sure that there's necessarily a prize for winning the race. We, we certainly know there's a, a penalty for losing the race on this and so i think that i think that you know you'll continue to see this move as fast you know especially domestically as investors drive it and and so but we're, we're well on the way uh, to, to reduce the emissions this is a good way of phrasing it. we don't know what the prize is we, we know what the the penalty is right we, we know what happens to the losers of the race but we're not quite certain uh, about the winners yeah, so it's certainly more stick than carrot, I think, uh, at the moment. And, you know, um, you know, there are carrots that, that, that you can see in the future, you know, and there are companies, you know, Oxy, Denbury, who are investing in, in carbon uh, sequestration technologies. And it's very clear where their business model uh, is, is headed. And, uh, you know, they, they'll play an important role in, in this as well. And what the eventuality is, you know, we, we don't know. And I don't think they know as well, but we know it's coming. And it kind of, it's coming and it's going to be demand driven in a lot of ways. And I, I want to talk about demand right now. Talk about demand for energy in general, oil and gas in specific, and kind of what your outlook is uh, going forward. I, I know we've been, you know, the, the trucking market's been been hot, you know, uh, 
you know, the ocean market, you know, everything has been good as a mixed shift of spending from the consumer has shifted over to tangible products more than services. So there's been a little bit of a shift. It doesn't take much, you know, three, four, five percent uh, uh, shift creates a lot of bottlenecks uh, that we're seeing in the supply chain right now. And it leads us to, and we've seen this, this retail sales numbers that, you know, what used to take us five or six years, we did in about 18 months in, in growth in retail sales. So with that demand, and we don't know where that demand is going to peak or if it has peaked so far, but where do you see a demand for, for energy uh, coming over the next, I don't know, 18 months, two years? Yeah, so, so, so in the short term, very strong, right, for, for oil and gas. Um, you know, we think that we, you know, we will average 100 million barrels a day demand this year globally. That is pre-pandemic levels. It represents about a 4.5 million barrel a day increase from last year. Uh, here in the U.S., we think that we get to a new record, you know, about 20, 20.8-ish million barrels a day of demand on, on an annualized basis. That, that's the highest that we've ever been now. The inner workings of that, as you know, you know, have changed, and and it's less driven by transport and more driven by some shifts to, you know, some ethane fed steam tractors and so forth. That's strong in the short term. It, it's looking out. It's looking out longer than that. It's an interesting comment that you made about being demand driven. You know, when you look globally, actually, most of what's been implemented from uh, from governments. And, and even from investors, it's really been targeted at the supply side of the equation. And I do think that we, we need to balance the two. Otherwise, you run into issues like we, what we've seen in Europe this winter. We have, you know, energy shortfalls and the cost of energy spiking. Uh, the short-term demand is strong and it's recovering. Longer-term, I would say this, that we have, we have pushed forward the, the peak for demand for oil even against the most stringent of scenarios where we try to limit global warming to, to two degrees, for example, uh, that crushes the oil demand. We don't think that's what happens, but that that's sort of the most severe scenario you can imagine. Uh, but natural gas, which is something we haven't spoken a lot about today, uh, is far more resilient and still plays a, plays a major role in that. So, uh, you know, not, nothing major in, in the short term, but certainly long term companies are having to figure out their, their business model. They definitely are, and that's one of the, um, you know, the, the the things that we're talking about is is will it ever come come back to normal post COVID nineteen post pandemic, uh, new business models on the financial side, you know, being more financial conservative, uh, or financially conservative, and then on the social side with net zero carbon, and then on the demand side, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, I'm sure demand will will return back to a normal path. Um, back to, to pre-pandemic levels uh, for, for oil and gas. So with that, I mean, what's your, I, I guess with that, what do you see as the biggest risk to the economy, to the oil markets, to the trucking market, to the supply chain, all in a buy? Oh, gosh, the, 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 biggest, the biggest risk to all of this. I'll, look, I'll say this. The, the biggest risk to U.S. oil and gas, I think, is not staying the course of this updated business model of managing through the cycles and, and adopting, you know, under the face of higher prices, a, an irresponsible business business model. We do think there that these producers will need to raise activity in the face of higher prices, but not get back into historical norms. And the reason that I say that's the risk is that 
you run the risk of flooding the oil market. You run the risk of value destruction from pushing costs higher faster than they're already increasing. You're looking at potentially lower commodity prices then. And if that transpires, the few investors who are left and interested in the sector will probably exit forever. And then the access to capital won't, won't be there. Ultimately, long-term, there's an extremely important wedge in our supply outlook in terms of meeting demand over the coming decade, then wouldn't be able to show up. So it would be potentially one last stand uh, at the, the, the end of it. So that, that's the big risk to me, is leaving this business model that's working too soon. We don't have any indication that's happening, by the way. But you have to question based on what we saw over the last 10 years, you know, if, if that's crossing the yeah, definitely. And it, we'll see what happens in the future. You know, you have the two poster children of boom and bust cycles, the oil market and the trucking and logistics market. We, we never seem to learn our lessons. So we'll see if um, certainly the oil oil companies or the shell players out there uh, might get overextended one more time in the cycle once things get safe and people add on risk. Um but, but thank you so much, Ben, for, for joining us today uh, here at Global Supply Chain Week. And stay tuned for more t- content coming on later this afternoon. Hey, thank you, Kevin.